0: Can we declare like a moratorium on set visit type articles? I'm uh, I personally am getting very, very tired of them. And there's just like a whole raft of them that came out today now that the embargo lifted on uh, Infinity War set visit stories. And (laughs) my timeline is just like flooded with them. I don't I don't see the the value in what a bunch of random film journalists noticed when they were allowed on the set for a day.
1: But that's part of, like, the whole Marvel machine, don't you know?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, I guess, like, you know, if they bring, like, 30 or 40 journalists and stick them in a tent on a very preordained type of day when they're guaranteed to, like, see some cool stuff being shot, it'll generate a lot of positive press coverage. Like, intellectually, I totally understand why Marvel would would be okay with it, but, like... Well, there you go. Yeah. But I just don't, like... In terms of what it contributes to the conversation, I don't know why all these these different reporters in do one for every major blockbuster. FOMO, man. If one site has that
1: scoop and you don't, you're fucked.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess. But I mean, like, it's it's always the same take. It's like, oh, I uh, we uh, had Chris Evans come over and uh, he walked up and said uh, a couple of words to me, and that was cool. And then I got to sit in the chair that. Uh, they used as the pilot seat for the Guardians ship, and blah, blah, blah. People eat this shit up all the time, Rob. Like, you shouldn't be
1: surprised this happens. I don't know. I'm surprised it doesn't happen more often. Although, I have to say, like, what timeline are you on? Because I don't see any of this stuff.
0: Maybe your uh, feed is more evenly balanced with, like, other stuff, and, and I've got far too many, like, film Twitter uh, alumni in my... Uh, in my feed. Not just film Twitter, but Marvel Twitter. I don't know though, because like, you know, I'll see, I'm following like probably 20 or 30 film journalists by this point. You know, some of them are like pro critics who just write reviews and other ones are like also sort of pop culture types who do these types of set visit things. And they're all like retweeting each other's stories or liking each other's stories. So that kind of amplifies it a bit, but it just felt like today, like you could almost feel the embargo lifting and, uh, Everyone posted their their first impressions of like, oh, it was cool to be on the set, and then we were in Wakanda, and then I sat in the chair. And blah. blah you blah. need
1: to stop following such lame film journalists,
0: then. Yeah, apparently I just have to be uh, have to do like a cull of my Twitter uh, following or something, and.
1: Uh, yes, yeah. I think you should. I I call my uh,
0: feed once in a while.
1: Sometimes I'll be like, "Why did I follow you in the first place?" Again, like,
0: yeah, it's probably like a follow for uh, follow back type of situation. No, I
1: think like sometimes I'll follow someone because they t- t- tweeted something interesting, but then I'll be like, "Wow, that was like one in a thousand.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> sometimes I'll just feel bad because like I'll get followed by somebody who initially seems like like they might offer some interesting content, and it's clear that they're like trying to build an audience. So like. I, I want to be nice and follow them back, even though I'm not super interested in what they're tweeting. Um, and then I'll just forget that they're there and it'll pollute my feet a bit. Do you
1: ever get burned or feel sad when you follow someone that you've met in real life or you're acquainted with and they don't follow you back?
0: I don't think that's happened. I mean, oh, I don't follow... Damn. That
1: means people don't like me then. <laughs> I don't know.
0: Maybe you introduce yourself to a lot of, a lot more people than I do. Maybe I'm very selective with... Uh, that's a no. <laughs> I don't talk to people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, obviously obviously, this business with set visits isn't going to change anytime soon, but it was something that got on my nerves today, so I figured I'd share it. <laughs> this is why uh, our generation
1: is like all depressed and stuff, because we don't have enough likes or followers. Yeah, like... We're like constantly
0: chasing that endorphin rush of like, oh my God, I got 10 likes on that tweet. like uh, 10 likes. you pleb. Oh yeah, well you you with your uh, <laughs> uh, your, your minute by minute hockey coverage, I'm sure that uh, that gets quite a quite a decent audience. No, it doesn't. No, <laughs> no, I, I don't do minute by minute.
1: I hate people who tweet minute by minute. It, it kind of gets on my nerves. But
0: don't you like, I mean, you're you're offering commentary on games like roughly when they happen though. Not
1: really. I, I can't do both at once. Oh, okay. I, I feel like if you're tweeting during a game, you're not paying attention to the game. I think there's too much going on for you to tweet at the same time. Well,
0: you know, that, that reminds me actually, because I think I sent you a photo once of like... Uh, one of the the desks used by the editors of deadspin or something and the the guy had like six screens and like three keyboards and he had he had multiple games running on several of the tvs and then he was live tweeting on another screen or something and and you 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 texted back something like just vomit emoji or something
1: (laughs) probably probably i i don't know how people can do that it's i'm i'm amazed on that note let's start the show
0: Welcome back to the Extra Buttery Podcast. This time on the show, we've got discussion of a couple of brand new movies for you, starting with Wrinkle in Time, followed by a movie by a brand new filmmaker. It's called uh, Thoroughbreds, so we'll be uh, getting into that. Uh, We'll also touch on the... uh, early buzz coming out of the new Steven Spielberg movie, Ready Player One, based on the novel by Ernest Cline. And uh, we'll be touching on a few other little news items here and there uh, as the discussion continues. But coming to you from Toronto, my name is Robert Snow, and joining me from Vancouver is my co-host, Jason Chen. How's it going? Good. How are you? Doing pretty good, uh, other than that uh, frustration I mentioned in the cold open over these uh, these set-visit things. Um, it's only going to get worse, I'm telling you. Yeah, I mean, it's just part of the machine now, I guess.
1: So does this kind of make you less interested in Infinity War? Does it turn
0: you off a little bit? I don't know. I mean, like, uh, I've read... I think I read one of the articles out of, like, Morbid Fascination, and it didn't really present me with anything I didn't already know from the trailer. Like, you know, they're basically just confirming stuff that we've seen you know the presence of characters the rough outline of some of the conflicts mm-hmm. but i guess for people who i guess for the for the kinds of people out there the marvel fans who get really amped up about like mid-credit scenes post-credit scenes they they like they're really into the mythology uh-huh these kind of articles really matter to them but you know they, they want to know everything about the movie before they even see it it's about the clicks man gotta get those clicks But yeah, for me, like, I'm just, uh, I'm just not, you know, I mean, obviously I'm going to see Infinity War out of whatever motivates me to see these uh, team-up movies now. It's not going to, it's not going to draw my interest the way, like, some of these recent solo efforts like uh, Thor Ragnarok and uh, Black Panther have. Yeah,
1: so is there, correct me if I'm wrong, but... Is there a second part to Infinity War? Is there a movie, another Avengers movie after this? There
0: is, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, they're doing one in like 2019 or something. That's going to close uh, close off whatever cliffhanger I'm sure is going to be at the end of this first. Infinity Which is probably War. Captain America dying, something like that. Yeah, it'll be the death of some major major character. I mean, if they if they follow the comics, then yeah, it'll be Captain Captain America. But um, they've also made a they've also suggested that maybe it could be Tony Stark because you know people are trying to. Have, uh, parse out like what Robert Downey Jr.'s contract might mean for the future of the the storyline and all that mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but yeah nobody's nobody's 100% sure but uh, just based on the way they've they've laid out their calendar of, uh, of movie releases there's going to be some sort of big shocker moment and uh, which kind of just like you know it, it goes a, uh, a lot further towards what a few uh, writers have been saying is like we're no longer watching a series of movies, we're watching, like, a giant TV show.
1: Yes, I agree. Not that there's anything wrong with TV shows, I think TV is a great medium. No,
0: no, but it's it's notable in the sense that, like, other than Star Wars, there aren't very many movies going out there now that are so big, so expensive, and so serialized in their storytelling, like you know, we're getting closer and closer to the point where you can't really go into one of these blind.
1: Well, that's only because X-Men screwed up their timeline and Fantastic Four was a flop. I I think studios have tried. Marvel's just done it better than anyone else.
0: Yeah, I guess. Like, when you think about the um, Universal or the, yeah, Universal's Dark Universe... Uh, attempt where they tried to like do the mummy and make that the first film in a series and then <laughs> it all kind of collapsed after that. Yeah. Um and there've been like there've been other examples of course too. Yeah, I mean Marvel and Star Wars are the only ones that are really doing it super successfully now, but um it's I I can't remember who it was. I think it was there's a video SAs that I've been uh I've been catching up on recently uh Patrick Willems, and he he did something recently where he was kind of talking about how marvel and star wars are sort of changing large format like big screen storytelling in a way they're they're doing things with this super uh, serialized format that you know it's hard to tell whether it's going to change all the other movies around them probably not it's kind of establishing itself as almost a different medium Mm -hmm. which is kind Mm -hmm. of interesting but maybe, maybe we'll just jump from there right into something else Disney-related, uh, Wrinkle in Time, which you saw over the weekend. Yes, I did. So, I mean, I, her, I think we maybe touched on the buzz a little bit. I can't remember if it was in the show or not, uh, but... The the word coming out of it that I heard was that uh, Ava DuVernay, who directed this, you know, she made a really great documentary, uh, 13th, and uh, another excellent biopic, Selma, about Martin Luther King Jr. Um, she's kind of jumping into the big blockbuster Disney uh, filmmaking game here with this movie, but what it sounds like is that she got the visuals right, but the storytelling side of it wasn't all that great. I don't know, what what did you think? <laughs> Where, where do
1: I start? Um, Uh-oh. <laughs> okay, I really like the book. It has been like, I think, 20 years, 15 years maybe since I last read it. Oh, like you you actually read
0: the book? Because uh, I've, I haven't... Yeah, I loved the book when I was a kid. Because I, I didn't read it, and I don't know how I missed it. Maybe I was like, I don't know, maybe another book series took its place or something, but...
1: It's only the only one worth reading, though. The others I never read. Like A Swiftly Tilting Planet, I never read.
0: Oh, okay, okay. But, yeah, for for whatever reason, I, I missed the book. So I've only come across, like, a few people in my circles of friends who are familiar with it. I think it's basically just, like, you and maybe uh, uh, Robin, our friend Robin.
1: Yeah, actually, I think I t- I tweeted to Robin about it. I was like, based on this trailer, this movie looks terrible.
0: Yeah, okay.
1: And she's like, well, you should be more positive, Jason. I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, But, okay, so the book, if I remember really was rather morbid and terrifying as a kid. I I was one of those people who felt it was very hard to adapt into a movie. And the the movie visuals are quite striking Mm -hmm. in that it's very colorful. There's obviously a lot of production value. But the three witches, so that's uh, Oprah Winfrey, Reese Witherspoon, and Mindy Kaling, they weren't what I had imagined in my head as the three witches.
0: Yeah, they're like what? Mrs. Who, Mrs. Which, and Miss. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly.
1: So I think visually, it wasn't as dark as I expected. Because if you. The first line in the movie is the basic cliche was a dark and stormy night. And it kind of starts off that way in the movie. But it all of a sudden starts getting really bright and colorful. It's very obvious from the get go that this was a kid's movie. So there are certain things that. I think were too shallow almost. I, I didn't feel the characters were very deep. I didn't think the story was very well explored. I thought the execution was okay. There's a, like a story in there about like, there's a coming of age story in there that I didn't think really fit. There's a bully, school bully in the movie that I don't remember being in the book and really ultimately I think could have been cut from the entire film. I do don't want to hate on child actors, but the kid who plays Charles Wallace. Charles Wallace is like the kid genius in the book. And he's kind of depicted as this like weird, odd, but obviously a genius type kid. And the kid in the movie is more adorable than precocious or something. Precocious. Yeah. And he's not even precocious in the novel. He's just kind of, he, he's almost telepathic in the book. Oh. There's this part where they talk about how he and his sister can communicate with just basically their minds, like he knows what she's doing all the time and what she's thinking. That being said, Storm Reed, who plays Meg Murray in the film, I thought she was by far the best part of the film. I thought she was really, really good. But overall, Zach Galifianakis and Michael Pena, I thought were underused. Visually it's very exciting, but story wise, I thought it was really boring. I mean, it, there wasn't much going on for it. And I th- there are parts of the book that were clearly cut from the film. For example, there's a set of twins in the book. Um, there's four Murray kids, Meg, Charles Wallace, and the twins. And the twins are cut in the movie. And not that they play a big role in the book, but obviously there were changes made that I didn't feel were quite necessary. It felt like a paint by numbers kids' movie. I honestly feel that this movie would have been better had it more of a darker Harry Potter sort of tone, especially the later uh, okay. Harry Potter films. Cause I, th- I think the movie deals a lot with like hatred and death and obviously love that I think were
0: quite complicated concepts in the book for, but in the film, they kind of dumbed it down. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean uh, the trailer that I saw kind of conveyed a little bit of that. I mean, it, it, made it seem like there was some sort of existential battle between like a an ultimate evil force and an ultimate light force or something and you know, and there's there's also the the issue of like the abandonment that the main character feels because she's she's essentially going off on this adventure to rescue her father played by Chris Pine because he's disappeared following some sort of scientific experiment. Where are we? We heard a cry out in the universe
1: my father's alive
0: we believe he is and we're here to help you find him we are in search of warriors
1: warriors who serve the good and the light in the universe so madeline lingo who wrote the book is like is huge on christianity and all all these like religious symbols Mm, okay and it didn't hit me over the head kind of like zack snyder did with Superman, thank God. But I, I think for a large part, they really ig- ignored that aspect of the book. And I th- I can't really help but think that Reese Witherspoon was like su- horribly miscast. She plays kind of like the quirky, kind of weird, odd witch of the three. But nothing Reese Witherspoon ever did came off as really quirky and odd. Like, she had the odd turn in Legally Blonde, but she played more of, like, a valley girl in that movie.
0: Yeah, she hasn't really been known for for t- taking, like, quirky roles. No, she's she tends not to play, that funny. Yeah, she tends to—well, I mean, she's, um, she's definitely done comedy, but it's always been in a leading lady sort of way. Yeah, and so I was kind of curious um, what led to them
1: casting her. I read this Time article—I think it was Time— where Eva Duvernay was saying she wanted to cast icons in the roles of the three witches, mm. and I can't help but think that any time you sacrifice acting ability and fit for like the biggest symbols in feminism today, I guess, kind of takes away from the movie because now you're just almost preaching. You're not really looking for a performance
0: first. Yeah, it becomes it becomes a little bit too meta or something. Yeah,
1: and and not that. A Wrinkle in is Time isn't sig- cultural significant, it is because it's Ava DuVernay and it's done pretty well in the box office so far, but as a film, I think it really suffers for it. And the film itself isn't very strong either. And I gave it two out of five, two and a half maybe, because it's a competent kids movie, but it could have been so much more. And I felt really, really disappointed that it didn't go as deep as into books, I don't think the ideas were as well fleshed out. And the colors were almost avatar-like. I, I I really felt like it didn't have a specific look to it. Oprah Rinfrey, if you see from the, the production photo, she has like this jeweled brow that she has. Oh, yeah. That I think just gets more ridiculous as the film goes on. And maybe it's just <laughs> not what I had imagined, so that's why I didn't like it as much. It, it is very well done. They obviously put a lot of care into it. But I didn't really get it. And the other thing is too the villains, um, they weren't very, they weren't fleshed out, mind you. In the book, they're more intangible.
0: Yeah, that's that's the 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 feeling I got from the trailer too. It didn't seem like there was a particular yeah, exactly. villain. Well, are like Galifianakis and Pena playing villain types? More
1: Pena than Galifianakis. The villain is called It, right? It. So I that's why for a long time I I think the the book was difficult to adapt. But I didn't feel a very strong good versus evil struggle.
0: But do you get the sense, um, even, though, even though it seems to be more catering towards the, uh, the younger audience, uh, is the film put together in a way that suggests Disney's aiming for a series with this one, or do they kind of tie things up at the end if, of it? It
1: feels like a one-off, even though the book actually ends on a cliffhanger. Oh, okay. Which I think maybe it should be because the the subsequent books from what I heard are just not nearly as good. I don't know if there's sequel in the works. I think based on the box office, maybe. But if there would be a sequel, I'm not interested in it. It's one of those films. It's kind of like Wonder Woman how the film seems to have more cultural importance than objectively being a good film.
0: Mm, yeah, so it's... You know, more of the attention is going towards, like, the fact that there's a young female mixed-race protagonist, and then there's a black woman as the director. Uh, So it's more of a meta thing than than the actual, like, art of it.
1: Yeah, it's more that the director is black and the movie had, like, a $100 million budget, which is, like... Unheard of, like a black woman. Um, so, I mean, kudos to Ava DuVernay. I just don't think the film overall was that good.
0: Okay. Well, that's too bad. I mean, uh, I'm sure she'll rebound and uh, she'll find her way to, a, to another good project.
1: Uh, maybe I'm just not... Because A Wrinkle in Time was... I think conceived and marketed as a children's book. Mm, yeah, so it makes sense, I guess, um, to be a kids' movie. And maybe I'm just not the right demographic for it. Yeah.
0: Well, we'll have to. Uh, I'll have to check in with Robin because I knew. she... Yes, ask her. Yeah, because we'll get we'll get uh, the uh, the flip side. If she thinks you're being too negative, maybe she'll <laughs> she'll find the uh, uh, something to like about I, it. I don't know. I don't uh, think I'm being too negative. I, I think it's legitimately like
1: an okay film. It just it's super forgettable.
0: Yeah, but you're you're definitely lining up with the the critical consensus that I heard. So yeah, maybe it's just not uh, it didn't come together on this one. Uh, for my part, I think the the day you were watching *Wrinkle in Time*, I was watching this uh, this new movie called uh, *Thoroughbreds*. Uh huh. And. And uh, it's actually pretty good. I didn't pay much attention to it when I first saw the trailer uh, a few months ago. But uh, someone I follow, uh, one of the writers for IndieWire, David Ehrlich, uh, he described it uh, over the weekend as being one of the possibly best filmmaking debuts of the year so far. And that kind of caught my attention because I'm, you know, uh, I like to keep my eye out for new filmmaking talent uh, wherever I can, you know, for uh, and this director, uh, Corey Finley, who is uh, fairly young. You know, he started out as a uh, I believe, a playwright. And uh, this is his first screenplay and uh, directing credit. And uh, he's essentially made a sort of a pitch black comedy slash psychological thriller, although it it doesn't really have a lot of, like, traditional thriller moments. (laughs) Okay. It's weird. It's kind of in a little subgenre of its own. But essentially, the, the story revolves around a pair of wealthy... Uh, high school age girls who both live in a like uh, exurb of uh, Connecticut, and uh, both of their families have been into riding since they were like really small and they uh, became friends, I guess, at a local riding club. One of the girls, uh, played by Anya Taylor Joy, who most people will probably know from uh, The Witch, and she was the female lead in M. Night Shyamalan's uh, Split uh, last year. She plays kind of like the Uh, straight arrow nice girl type and her friend is played by Olivia Cook, who uh, was in uh, Bates Motel the uh, the TV show that was kind of the prequel to Psycho Um, Mm -hmm. and uh, indie film fans will probably remember her from uh, Me and Earl and the Dying Girl she was really Mm -hmm. good in that but Olivia Cook plays a girl who is essentially a sociopath like she the film opens with her uh, staring at her horse, the one she's ridden from uh, since she was a little girl, and she pulls a knife out of her bag, and then the movie cuts to black and to the title sequence. And you're like, uh, what's happening? But essentially, the the two girls have been apart for a while when the uh, the movie starts, and whatever it is that Olivia Cook's character does to the horse is kind of like the inciting incident, and the, she's uh, basically given a some sort of diagnosis of extreme mental illness. And uh, (laughs) the friend played by Anya Taylor-Joy is kind of compelled by her parents to go and kind of make friends with this girl again and try to help her as a tutor. And this sets off this uh, kind of dark and twisted kind of critique of wealthy people whereby Olivia Cook's character slowly corrupts Anya Taylor-Joy's character and makes her realize that uh, maybe she's not nearly as happy as she thinks she is and that maybe she's harboring some violent feelings towards her stepfather Mm -hmm. and they start planning a murder maybe (laughs) Um, so it but it's done with like a kind of a tongue-in-cheek sort of thing and uh, you're the whole time you're not not quite sure whether you should be like laughing or kind of creeped out you hate him You despise him. Honey, you can't go in looking like that. I'm fine. I'm not going to have to stand here all day like a robot repeating myself. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. You ever think about just killing him? How would you? This is also the last film Anton Yelchin made, right? Yes, that's right. So he pops up as like a low-level drug dealer, like a son of another wealthy family from the neighborhood who's kind of fallen from grace, and he just sells like party drugs to... Uh, to the wealthy kids who hang out in some of the mansions nearby um, and he's kind of recruited to help the girls with their murder plot <laughs> but they end up kind of manipulating him and uh, so it, uh he's kind of uh, playing the patsy essentially I see okay um, recommend. Yes, no? Yes, yeah, I would recommend it. It's not like a mind blowing like rush out and see it kind of thing, but if you happen to see a screening near you or if it pops up on a streaming service in the near future, I definitely say like, you know, solid recommendation. And obviously like it's kinda cool to see movies like this just come from a new talent so fully formed and so confident. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like you feel like this guy's been making movies his entire life. I also have to recommend it on the basis of the score, which is really weird. Long stretches of silence with these kind of like tribal jungle drums uh, at, a, at weird points and then kind of almost like Inuit style throat singing mixed in. Huh. Uh, so it, it really contributes this sense of unease and you're just like the whole time you're like, I don't know, you get these shivers crawling up your back, which kind of again, uh stops you from laughing out loud at some of the weirder moments it's not like morbid or anything right no it's not like it's they're not certainly not playing the violence for laughs okay it's more like the the dialogue is is generating the humor Mm -hmm. and the kind of the deadpan reactions from olivia cook's character Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's a weird one you can't fully call it a comedy can't fully call it a thriller
1: one of those new movies that's just kind of bending everything huh
0: yeah yeah it's almost a uh it's got a bit of a get out vibe although get out is definitely more mainstream like get out has like a more traditional score and a little bit more of a traditional structure but it's kind of in that hard to classify status that uh, that get out had i see but uh, jumping from that uh, maybe actually let's uh, circle back around to the mouse house again the house of mouse John Favreau has been tapped to direct this landmark show for their upcoming streaming service, which doesn't have a name yet, but it's going to be a live action Star Wars show.
1: Uh, It's a good choice because he's very good at world building.
0: Yes, it's true. And I mean, he's a he's a trusted uh, name for them now. Like he's kind of one of their one of their in-house creatives who can uh, jump into any project and. They can trust him with big budgets. So, uh, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, he did kick it off with Iron Man. Exactly. Yeah. But, uh, and they've given him, like, the Jungle Book. And, uh, is, is he doing The Lion King right now? There's, uh, I think so. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, he's, he's working on this, like, another one of these cartoons turned into quasi live action adaptations, uh, with, like, a all star cast. So, he's definitely uh, part of the team there. This was kind of like a matter of time, I think. Uh, Disney really needed some sort of big show that could anchor their streaming service on day one. Um, Something like House of Cards was for Netflix when Netflix launched. Mm -hmm. That could be the the must-watch show that will drive people to subscribe. Now, of course, we don't know anything about what period and the chronology this show is going to be set in. Is it going to be a prequel to the original trilogy? Is it going to be... Um, pushed more towards like the era that the movies are exploring with uh, Ray and Kylo Ren and that kind of stuff. But I mean, I have to say, this would be the one thing that would get me to subscribe for yet another streaming service.
1: Oh, really? So you're uh, you're really into this thing?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's it's something that George Lucas actually had talked about doing ages ago, and he I remember this is before he sold um, Lucasfilm to Disney. Uh, He and Rick McCallum, who's uh, one one of his longtime producers, they once said that they would love to do a live-action TV show, and they couldn't at the time because they wanted it to have, like, movie-quality special effects, and it just wasn't feasible to do at a uh, TV budget, uh, which at the time would have probably come from, like, a network of some kind. But as we've seen, cable channels like HBO and, of course, Netflix, they're willing to drop, like, tens of millions of dollars on premium content of this kind, so it's uh, it's a different landscape now. Mm-hmm. Do you think you like, you may hold off and uh, not subscribe right away, depending on how well this one does?
1: Yeah, you know what? As much as I hate on how Skywalker centric the Star Wars movies are, I really don't have any real interest in the rest of the Star Wars universe. No? Not necessarily. Unless it has to do with Jedis and Sith, I really don't care about the rest.
0: What if they go like way, way back in era's well before the the prequel trilogy like the when the jedi and sith were at the height of their power and all that
1: yeah so anything with jedi and sith i'm super interested in because i think that is the biggest and most interesting conflict within the star wars universe for me but if you're talking about like the adventures of boba fett <laughs> who i think is like the most overrated character in star wars yeah history, i agree with you actually or like han solo adventures or like Lando Calrissian Adventures, although it depends on how good Donald Glover is. I really don't have any huge interest in it. I'd almost rather watch something else. It was kind of like Star Trek. Like, I'm not necessarily interested in like a whole broader galaxy or universe. I like things that are more self contained, where if you watch one movie, that's kind of like you, you can. Yeah, one and done kind of thing. Exactly.
0: One and done. Hmm, okay. Well, I mean, yeah, for me. I would say yeah, I, I'm excited for this up until a point and you like listed a couple of examples that where it would be a little bit cliche or a little bit too obvious for them to to do those ideas. But yeah, if they go into some of the the really weird parts of the the Star Wars mythology that have up until now basically just been in like video games and comic books or or novels, um, stuff like, you know, the era of the knights of the old republic type of thing like thousands of years before the that i'm interested in yes you know because uh, i don't know how far you've read into the expanded universe stuff and you know not to not to endorse that stuff too much because it also gets really really bad at points um but yes uh there's like weird stuff to do with like planets ruled by the sith and like huge battles where like thousands of Jedi and thousands of Sith are all fighting simultaneously and like uh creepy dark side magic and all kinds of stuff and it gets it gets really really weird and kind of almost not very star warsy after a well, while
1: yeah and the problem with that is sometimes they start getting really inconsistent mm, yeah part of the reason the last Jedi had its ridiculous moments is because whatever force powers are it's not consistent. And it seems like if you have, if you know or the Force or know how to use it, there's, like, nothing in this world you can't do.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, there's, like... Like, uh, floating
1: through space?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, that wasn't too far... I mean, it looked silly, but it wasn't too far out of the realm of possibility because, like, you know, there was no gravity. They, but they never set the rules of how the Force works. Well, exactly, and that, I mean... And that works both ways, too, because there, there were people saying that... That those scenes were not Star Wars in qu- like quotation marks because uh, we'd never seen it before. But to your point, because we'd never seen it before, it was just as possible. Yes, yes, but it, the risk is running too far off the deep end with it. Um, but no, I think like generally speaking, there's there's a lot of great territory to explore with this show, and and then just like from an industry perspective, I am very interested to see what kind of impact a company the size of Disney can have on the streaming market by especially in this uh, because they like once this thing gets up and going like assumingly they get the Star Wars show they have a few other shows ready at launch how much of Netflix's market share is going to be scraped away by by this thing Uh, obviously they won't be making any more of the Marvel themed TV shows after a certain point for uh, Netflix and, and that's like a pretty big chunk of, of Netflix's premium content there. So, you know, it could it could kind of rebalance things a little bit on a, an industry level too, which is uh, kind of interesting.
1: And Speaking of adaptations and, and whatnot, remakes and all these blockbusters geek culture Tomb Raider's out soon.
0: Yeah, and that's that's driving a conversation of its own. There's uh, a few people... I like, don't expect that to be good either. Neither do I. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I've, I think we've been burned way too many times with video game adaptations. <laughs> yes. I mean, if there are a few people out there that are still... They still seem to be kind of like crossing their fingers and hoping against hope that this will be an outlier. But I don't really... I don't really believe it. I mean there's even from the trailer you can kind of pick up on the on the moments that are going to be way too much like a video game to really sustain themselves as mm-hmm. a movie um like the shots of her ducking under these ridiculous tomb traps like studded spike wheels and flame jets and stuff like that and you're like okay i mean it's fine to see that but i mean i could also just do that in a game mm-hmm. yes so yeah that's always been for me that's always been like one of the core structural problems of of these adaptations is like, they very rarely offer anything that you can't get from the game experience. Tomb
1: Raider's tracking at uh, 50% because it's already been released in Asia. Oh, so it's got a... Okay. And Thorbreds is certified fresh at 86. Oh, so there you go. Between those three,
0: I guess we should tell people to watch Thorbreds. It seems like a far more interesting film anyway. If you can find it, yeah. I mean, it uh, it's I think Thoroughbreds is only playing in limited release, so it'll be... Unfortunately, it'll be a lot easier to see Wrinkle in Time and uh, and Tomb Raider. Casting our attention a little bit further ahead, um, there's also Ready Player One coming up in a couple weeks time, yes. and this is uh, this one seems to be driving the online conversation in a way. I, I like not to compare it to Black Panther because it's <laughs> unfortunately there's already been a few uh, misguided people trying to argue that Ready Player One is the Black Panther for the geeks. That makes no sense. What does that even mean? It's a stunningly bad take. Um, there's uh, been a couple of tweets. People have been screen capping them and sharing them on Twitter of, like, yeah, p- people trying to make this argument and... I mean I I don't even know where to start with it but I'll just kind of let it sit there that there there are people who seem to think that geek culture has been somehow still oppressed all these many years of superhero movie dominance and and that you know there's like an equivalency between geek culture and black culture or something i like, I, I, don't, I don't get it it's, it's just really stupid but but anyway I mean the early buzz for this one is uh tracking surprisingly positive and uh, there's a lot of people kind of triumphantly waving their geek, geek flag saying like, oh, see, I told you so. Like, the book was great. And, you know, it's not just a... The book was not great. I read the book. It's horrific. Yeah, I think we, we talked about this in an early episode, actually. Yes. Um, for me, I read the book, I think maybe... I knew this movie was coming out. So I've, I picked it up and I read it maybe six or seven months ago. And... I mean, I saw it for what it was pretty quickly. Like, it's basically just like a, a soundboard of references. And yep. I think the nostalgic part of your brain, like the the part of your brain that loves callbacks, it's probably more better developed in, in some people than others. But it's kind of like popcorn. It kind of, you're like, oh, I know that. Oh, I know that one. Oh, I get that too. Oh, I feel so smart because I recognize all these, these callouts. Yep. Um, that part of your brain goes into like hyperdrive and it can be easy to kind of overlook some of the creepier or um immature aspects of the thing. And I think you talked about this too like uh were you were, were you looking at all about like the the weirdness of the main romantic relationship at all for between like Wade Watts and uh, the girl that he's uh, in no, love with? No. No. I don't know much about the movie other
1: than base, basic premise, but I do remember picking up the book, kind of flipping over the a couple pages and said no this isn't my kind of book
0: well i mean like uh, going back to our conversation about skyfall actually i mean like there couldn't be a something more anathema to what you <laughs> what you look for in a movie than just a bunch of callbacks to pre-existing properties <laughs> yes
1: okay I don't think Skyfall was a bad movie, though. I just no. I just remember that that was one
0: of the things that you pointed out that you yes like, you, you that I didn't like. Yeah, you didn't respond to all the like the 50th anniversary uh, shoutouts uh, in the same way that like I did. I responded negatively. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we put it. <laughs> exactly. I did not respond in a positive fashion. Right. Uh, I've, for somehow, like Ready Player One is built up like it's kind of. It, Maybe maybe it's in a it's overreaching to kind of uh, stick Ready Player One fans together with like the GamerGate dudes who like go after women yeah, for being I, I, interested just, in video games. Yeah. that might be a little bit of a, a noxious combo or or comparison, but but it does seem like they trade members every so often. Like you get you get these dudes who are so into geek culture they don't consume anything outside of you know eighties. Uh, movies or don't we call these guys neckbeards or something like that? <laughs> yeah, like you know, there's 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 lots of unfriendly names for them. But yeah, like dudes like that who uh, are just immersed in in the stuff. And Ready Player One as a book was like crack to them. And now the movie comes along, and a lot of a lot of critics and a lot of people who were kind of thinking about the creepier vibes in the book probably guessed oh the movie's gonna it's gonna struggle with this kind of stuff but apparently it's a crowd pleaser and like if you don't think too much about it you can have a fun time so then that's just kind of opening up the conversation again people being like no it's really great and i told you so and and you know i'm a fan of the book and i always knew it was going to be great and then all of these other people who are like no but you have to pay attention to how horrible he is towards women in the book and all all this stuff and it's you know it's getting really loud and angry in a way that i didn't expect
1: (laughs) Fair enough. Well, I don't know. You'll have to go see it and then convince me to play. Or see. (laughs) You see what you did there? (laughs) Ready Player One. (laughs) Made me want to start playing 80s video games again. Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, I don't know. I think it's going to be hard for me after the way the book has been described in in pop culture the past little while to kind of go in clean on this one. I think I'm going to be looking at it with a pretty... Uh, pretty hard eye essentially about especially like you know because the main character pursues this the this female character and doesn't seem to respect her as a you know she doesn't seem to recognize that she has any kind of agency or that she has a a right to like, turn him down if she's not interested in him or have a mind of her own essentially and uh, while i i can sort of see how spielberg might fix that in the movie version it's going to be one of the more difficult parts of the of the book to, to get over, I think.
1: Has Spielberg ever made a movie with a strong female character as the lead? I mean, you can make the argument that
0: Meryl Streep's character in The Post was pretty strong.
1: Ah, okay. Right. But before that? Well, there is like a, a young girl who's the protagonist of the BFG. Oh, okay. All right. Never mind. Every time I think of a Spielberg f- film, it's I always think of male-dominated
0: movies. Well, sure. Yeah. Like the biggest movies that he's got... Obviously, Saving Private Ryan, Schindler's List. But I'm glad that war movies like that don't
1: have a female component in it. Because more often than not, they serve as the love interest. Mm. It's kind of like Hacksaw Ridge. I thought the love story was very unnecessary.
0: Mm-hmm. But I- I'm sure he's done other stuff. Yeah. I mean, Ellie Sadler from Jurassic Park is, uh, you know, she's not really a love interest. It's it's kind of clear that, like... No, but she's not the lead. Either. No, true. She She, like, disappears for half the movie. Yeah. What about, uh, who, who's the female lead in Close Encounters, the mom of the little boy? Uh. I always forget who plays her. Anyway, but yeah, I think, like, broadly speaking, you're probably right. Like, most of his... Oh, the color purple.
1: Yeah, oh, one. okay, yeah. Yeah, so never mind. Yeah,
0: but broadly speaking, like, maybe, like, I don't know, 60% of his leads are probably men or maybe 70%.
1: Yeah, which isn't like out of the outside the norm because you know he's a, he's a director who's no, I mean Hollywood
0: is Hollywood. Yeah,
1: Hollywood is Hollywood, and he's been around since like what the 70s and 80s.
0: Yeah, and, pretty much. Um, it's more of a new movement, so I hope it gains a lot of steam. Oh, and we were <laughs> we we were joking about this before, but I guess we I guess we can't ignore the fact that they're remaking Terminator.
1: Are Are they making remaking Terminator? Or are they just making another sequel? Well, here's the thing: they're doing both. Oh my God! Yeah, (laughs) is it like a reboot sequel? Yes, very much so. Oh my God! So
0: essentially, and like you know, people are piecing this together through stuff that Arnie has said, and I think something that one of the producers said. But Arnie has confirmed that he's coming back. He's going to be playing the T eight T eight hundred again, and then I think the producer confirmed that it's going to ignore all of the sequels oh after dog. T2. James Cameron needs to go away. Well, and and he's in it as an executive producer, which is a little bit of a difference from before because he wasn't involved after T2. But, I mean, I really thought after Genesis, Terminator Genesis, (laughs) Genesis. (laughs) I really thought that... I'm not the first person to make that joke, incidentally, but I really thought after that one, like, the series was going to go away for at least a significant amount of time. Like, it probably would never be 100% dead. Uh, I thought there was going to be a longer break, and maybe we wouldn't get Schwarzenegger back uh, in the whatever version they did next. But but yeah, to, to see it kind of jump back to life after only a couple of years is a little bit depressing, especially, you know, I mean, the last thing the Terminator franchise needs, especially after the very like specific way that Terminator 5, Terminator Genesis stomped all over the things that made T2 great. The last thing the series needs is a movie that tries to retcon the continuity all over again. It takes it takes a lot of focus to even make sense of where we are at well, after five films, let alone a sixth one that's kind of choosing its own place in the in the chronology. But the one bright light about this whole thing is the fact that they've hired uh, Mackenzie Davis to be a uh, main character.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: Yeah, and uh, she's she's somebody that for people who who don't immediately know the name, she's one of the stars of AMC's *Halt and Catch Fire*, which I'm a huge fan of, a TV show about early computer uh, revolution. Why is she playing so many computer dorks? I don't know. Maybe maybe the she's been typecast a little bit. She Yeah, she was in that. I, I loved her in that. She did five seasons as that character. She just recently got their uh, series finale, I think early or late last year. And of course, she was she was in a small role in Blade Runner 2049 and uh, another supporting role in The Martian as well. Yes. She's going to be playing more of a lead in this one apparently. So uh, we, we still don't know what her type of a character she's playing i mean if there was somebody who could make me more interested in in the sequel it might be her. Ah, big fan huh uh yeah you could say that <laughs> <laughs> i'm not gonna go as far as to add her to my list of like sister wives like you do with some actresses but <laughs> <laughs>
1: sister wives you mean just flat out wives
0: well wouldn't they be sister wives if they're all married to you at once uh mm, depends on the day of the week i guess <laughs> The Extra Buttery Podcast now endorsing Mormonism
1: <laughs> or polygamy or whatever the hell they call it.
0: <laughs> Why are we even talking about this? Uh, you have to, you have to consider all of the implications to your uh, your comedy.
1: Well, in my fantasy world, there's no such stupid rules. So there you go.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, any other any other news uh, that uh, that's kind of caught your attention recently? Um, um, not
1: really, but I am. Waiting for the movies, like the blockbuster movie season to really kick off. Yeah,
0: yeah. I guess, I mean, Infinity War will kind of be the official that. I don't know. It's probably going to be with like Ready Player One, I guess. That's that's probably big enough. Oh, there is there is something that, uh, that just caught my attention earlier today. And that's uh, Alex Garland from Annihilation and Ex Machina fame. He's actually developing a new show for FX called Devs. And it's going to be a sort of tech thriller, which, of course, we know he's, he's pretty adept at. Centering on a female employee of a major tech company in San Francisco who begins an investigation into some sort of clandestine department run by her company, which may be responsible for her boyfriend's disappearance. Oh. So... Uh, I, I think it. I think it was just kind of teased today, and I don't know when it's going to be coming out. Wouldn't surprise me if F, if FX is planning it for their streaming solution. Uh huh. I mean, anything from Alex Garland at this point, I will eat up gladly. Uh, <laughs> Annihilation is great, and uh, we were we were talking about it in the last episode because neither of us had seen it yet. But I think we both kind of came out heavily in favor of it. Yes. Is it the best movie so far in twenty eighteen? Uh, yeah, I would. Uh, I I think I would add it to the list for sure. Top three, I think. Yeah, what other movies would be up there? Of like new releases?
1: Yeah, of movies in twenty eighteen.
0: Yeah, actually, I think yeah, it would. Uh, uh, there haven't been any like major releases for me other than like Black Panther. But like we got in last episode, we kind of talked about how you know that's Annihilation's better. Yeah, Annihilation is is better film in terms of like as a film. So uh, yes, as a film, yes. I mean, I, I yeah, I'm totally totally in favor of Alex Garland getting all the work possible, and uh, it'd be cool to see what he does with the with the TV format too, because this is being pitched as like a, a limited series with mm-hmm. like a handful of episodes versus like a an ongoing thing. Uh, have you ever seen uh, the movie that he wrote but not directed? Never Let Me Go. It Was with uh, oh. Andrew Garfield before he was Spider Man and uh, Carrie Mulligan. Yeah, it's based on the book by Ishiguro. Yes, right? yeah, yeah. And
1: and it's, I tried reading the book, but I never got through it because it's just not my kind of book, but it's about like, isn't it about like cloning people and like
0: harvesting organs and stuff? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's only revealed, I guess, I can't speak for the book because I don't know how the author kind of revealed that information, but the, the way Garland wrote the script for the movie adaptation, it teases out that information very gradually. And when you finally I think it's like the final right. ten minutes essentially, the movie really hits you with like the implications of what this cloning for organ donation stuff really means for the characters. Yeah. Yeah. It's kinda like the book. The book does the same kind of deal as well. Yeah. And, and like I I still like I, I still kinda get chills thinking about some of the final sequences from the movie because there's like I think there's this one shot where uh, Kira Knightley's in in the movie, too, as one of the uh, the clones that's been raised just for the purposes of organ donation. And there's the shot like it's a it's I think it's a dolly shot. It's moving back from the hospital bed where or the operating table where her character is laid out and they're like essentially just re- removing the organs from her. And it was like a creepy as hell shot. Really? Uh, still kind of haunts me a little bit.
1: He he's really
0: good at doing that. eh? Yeah. Yeah. And like at the time, I didn't really register his name because he was, you know, he's the writer on it, not the director. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that I guess that's the auteur theory, uh, biting me in the ass a little bit. But but no, like coming out of that, doing X Machina, making a name for himself, and now where he's going with this new show, I'm uh, super excited. Okay, I think that about does it for this episode. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> we, we came in on time this time. Head on over to Kinescope.ca as usual, where we've all, we're always posting things. We've got a new review of Annihilation up on the site that Jason posted. And... I'll have a wrinkle in time up soon, I promise. Yeah, so we will, we'll get that up for you as well. Probably be... Uh, doing some coverage of tomb raider potentially and uh the new wes anderson film which is also on its way uh, in the next uh, couple of weeks Isle of dog i of dogs yeah so uh, keep your eyes out for that uh, but until next time my name is robert snow in toronto and my name is jason chen in vancouver and we will
1: talk to you next time